And now, Lord, as we come to your word, once again, we thank you for it. And once again, we acknowledge our desperate need for grace. We acknowledge our inability to accept these truths. We acknowledge our inability to understand these truths apart from the Holy Spirit working within us. And so we ask that the Holy Spirit would accompany the preaching of your word, that your word would be strong and powerful unto salvation, unto transformation, that our lives would glorify and reflect the grace that we have in Christ Jesus our Lord. Please use this time to glorify him and to strengthen us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, if you have your Bible, I invite you to turn with me to Psalm 12. The first Sunday of each month, we, uh, we look at a psalm. Who knows how long this will take us? Uh, probably as long as we're going through John and at this pace. Who knows how long that's going to be? <laughs> it might be a while, but there are lots of psalms, thankfully. So praise the Lord for that. But we're going to be looking at Psalm 12 today. You might remember that last week, one of the things I talked about was asking the right questions whenever we approach a biblical text. And if you remember what those questions were, uh, one of them was, what does this text teach me about God? And the other question that I encouraged you to ask whenever you come to a text is, what does this verse or passage teach me about humanity or about myself? And the Psalms are one of the best places to learn about both. One of the best places to learn about God is the Psalms. I'd say his attributes are maybe most clearly revealed in the Psalms. But the Psalms are a wonderful place not only to learn about God, but also to learn about humanity, to learn about ourselves. The Psalm that we're going to be looking at today deals with the treacherous nature of man's words and the trustworthy nature of God's word. Words are powerful things. I mean, we've all heard the expression, the pen is mightier than the sword. Uh, Well, what do you do with a pen? You write words, right? Uh, Words can encourage. Words can fortify and, and strengthen the human spirit. Words can educate us. Words can, uh, can, can help us to improve our understanding on something. But on the flip side, words can also be weapons, brutal weapons. Words can destroy. Words can mislead and deceive. Words can inflict a pain that may never completely go away for a person. Words can be used for great good, but they can also be used for unimaginably great evil. We live in, an, uh, in what they call the postmodern age. It's an age that rejects the idea of absolute truth. It's an age in which most people don't know what to believe anymore and don't trust what anybody else says so much anymore. We've all seen the countless instances of of fake news. Uh, People are tired in this age of, of politics because politicians never seem to be honest anymore. Is there anyone who will just tell us the simple, straightforward truth without some kind of political bias affecting their perspective and you know, their, their side of the story? In a world like ours, 
it's really easy for us to, to wonder where all the godly, faithful, trustworthy people have gone. And that's exactly what David was feeling as he wrote Psalm 12. Now, I realize that this to us might seem like a new phenomenon, but I would argue that it's not. There's nothing new under the sun. Maybe what's uh, new, at least for this generation, is our awareness of the, the lies and the deceit and uh, the, the ways that the powers that be deceive and twist words for the sake of gaining and maintaining their positions. But the lying and the deceiving that we see all around us is certainly not a new phenomenon. It, it's been around as long as man has been outside of the Garden of Eden. And as God's people, that should bother us. Let me say it again. As God's people, that should bother us. It should get under our skin. It should bother us a lot because everything that falls short of the truth is a lie. And one of the nicknames of Satan, one of the, one of the names by which Jesus refers to Satan is the father of lies. In John 8, Jesus was confronting some people who had put their faith for salvation in their ancestry, in their, uh, in their ethnic father, Abraham, but he wasn't their spiritual father in any sense. And so Jesus says to them, as they've rejected him and they're planning to murder him, he says to them, you are of your father the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. And he goes on to say, whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. So the reason these people were lying about him is because they belong to the devil. The devil is the father of lies, and we are a people... As people who have been redeemed, we are a people of the truth. We are a people who should love truth because God is, in the very essence of his nature, truth. When Jesus told of the coming of the Holy Spirit, he referred to the Holy Spirit as what? The Spirit of truth. When Jesus was praying his high priestly prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, he prayed this. He said, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. What's he talking about there? The Bible. The Bible. So truth should matter to us. It should matter a lot to us. And when something that's less than true, something other than true is presented, it should bother us. Because truth does matter. As we continue in our study of the Psalms today, we're going to be looking at yet another Davidic Psalm. And it's really about David's frustration with the way that wicked people uh, use their mouths. This is a psalm about the way that people abuse speech. And it's a psalm that reminds us that what comes out of the mouth is a reflection of what's in the heart. Jesus said the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. And on another occasion, he said the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart. So as we look at a psalm about the speech of man... And the trustworthiness of God. We have to understand that it's, it's really, uh, David's complaint is really about what all too often fills and flows out of the heart of man. The point of this psalm is simply this. Man's words often seem powerful, but they are weak. And God's words often seem weak, but they are always powerful. God may feel absent sometimes, 
But his word, which is trustworthy, assures us that he is not absent, indeed that he is never absent, but that he is always active. The psalm can be broken down into two main parts plus a conclusion. So we will start by looking at verses 1 to 4 where we consider the words of the wicked, which are also the cause of David's grief and sorrow. So we're looking at Psalm 12. It says, For the choir director, upon an eight-stringed lyre, a psalm of David. Help, Lord, for the godly man ceases to be. For the faithful disappear from among the sons of men. They speak falsehood to one another. With flattering lips and with a double heart they speak. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips, the tongue that speaks great things, who have said, with our tongue we will prevail. Our lips are our own. Who is Lord over us? Again, there is nothing new under the sun. The ways that people misuse the tongues that God has given them today is the same way that people misused their tongues in David's day. So the psalm starts out by reminding us once again that the psalms are meant to be sung congregationally. The psalms are meant to be sung Together, as God's family, David, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, left instructions for the choir master so that the people of God throughout the ages would hear and embrace the truths of this psalm, learning the doctrines contained in this psalm, embracing the truths that are articulated in this psalm. So we're reminded that God's people have been singing this psalm for roughly 3,000 years now. And of course, we remember that Paul instructed the New Testament church to sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs in Colossians 3.16. So let us never take the view that singing psalms is something that we can just have a take-it-or-leave-it attitude toward. And let us resolve once again to take the truths of the psalms to heart. Unfortunately, that is not what the children of Israel did with this psalm, with this psalm that deals with the importance of speaking truth. Over time, if you've read the Old Testament, you know that the prophets would warn the people of Israel of God's anger against them for the way that they were lying, for the way that they abused their ability to speak. God warned the people through the prophet Micah, who said in chapter 6, verse 12, The rich men of the city are full of violence. Her residents speak lies, and their tongue is deceitful in their mouth. Jeremiah 9.3, they bend their tongue like their bow. Lies and not truth prevail in the land, for they proceed from evil to evil, and they do not know me, declares the Lord. Again in verse 5, Jeremiah chapter 9, everyone deceives his neighbor and does not speak the truth. They have taught their tongues to speak lies. They weary themselves committing iniquity. Amos chapter 2 verse 4, they rejected the law of the Lord and have not kept his statutes. Their lies have also led them astray after those, uh, those after which their fathers walked. That's just a small sampling of all the warnings given to the children of Israel about the way that they were lying and deceiving and teaching themselves to lie and deceive, and even deceiving themselves. We get the point, right? The children of Israel were constantly guilty of the very thing that caused David's grief and sorrow, as we see in Psalm 12. 
So his psalm starts out with a, with a cry for help. Help, Lord. And that's immediately followed by what he observes. He says, the godly man ceases to be, for the faithful disappear from among the sons of men. So David, as he writes this, he's feeling alone. He feels isolated. He feels abandoned by the faithful men that once surrounded him, people who once seemed godly but had apparently turned aside and rejected the covenant promises of God, exchanging them for the word of man. Maybe for the applause of man. Maybe for the acceptance of man. Whatever the case may be, they had turned from the covenant promises of God. And David probably felt very similar to the way that the prophet Elijah felt at one point as he fled from Jezebel and wandered alone through the desert wilderness, crying out to God in 1 Kings 19.10. He said, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the sons of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword, and I alone am left. And they seek my life to take it away. Now, of course, Elijah was wrong. And, and God tells him he's wrong. His feelings were real. What he was feeling, the, the isolation, the loneliness that he was feeling, that, that was real. But they were based on his flawed perception. They were based on his flawed perception because, as, as Paul reminds us again in Romans 11, salvation is entirely of the Lord. And the Lord himself had set aside 7,000 who had not bowed the knee to Baal. Uh, when Elijah found that out, when, when God told Elijah that, it must have seemed almost unbelievable. It, it must have been shocking to Elijah in the earth. From his perspective, it sure didn't look like there was anyone else in the, in the earth. It sure didn't feel like there was anybody else in all the earth who was remaining steadfast and faithful unto God. From his perspective, he was all alone. It was just him. But the reality is that this is often the way that God's people feel. We often feel alone. But we're not. We, that's the first thing we need to remember. We, we, we often feel abandoned by, by man, and to an extent, we should say we should feel abandoned by man. I mean, right now, our culture is not just marching steadfastly forward on the road that leads to hell and destruction. They appear to be sprinting to some kind of finish line at the end of that road. And, and whenever this happens, whenever a culture starts sprinting toward hell and destruction, we as God's people should feel like we're alone. We should feel like this world is not our home. And you probably do feel like you just don't fit in with the people around you on a daily basis. And it's likely that David felt like this many times. He probably felt like this when Saul was pursuing him with murderous intentions. He probably felt this way when Absalom, his son, was pursuing him, caused him to, to flee. And yet, one of the first things that you should notice here as we look at the introduction for this psalm is that there's no indication here as to exactly what instance uh, may have caused him to write this, uh, this psalm. So the fact that David uses no first-person terminology and no specific instance in his life uh, in terms of referring to it in this psalm, it makes it easier for us to relate. 
It, it, it makes it easier for us to identify with exactly what David was experiencing. So what was he experiencing? What, what was it that was making him feel so isolated, so alone, so abandoned? It was the fact that he was surrounded by people who used words for the sake of deceiving others and promoting or exalting or both themselves. So David mentions four specific things that those people were doing as we look at the text. Uh, look at, look at uh, verse 2. The first thing he says is they speak falsehood to one another. That is to say, they were lying to each other. They were deceiving one another. They were twisting and perverting the truth. James Montgomery Boyce notes this. He says, to us, a lie means falsehood, a distortion of truth. The Hebrew word, while it includes this idea, actually means emptiness, thus including also the additional ideas of insincerity and irresponsibility, end quote. So indeed, the word that gets translated as falsehood can also be translated as emptiness or vanity. Uh, The idea here, though, is that there aren't just a few here and there who are doing it. The idea here is that absolutely everybody that he's surrounded by is doing this. It's not just a few. It's not something that was just happening here and there. It was everyone doing it everywhere. It was the young. It was the old. It was the rich, the poor, the educated, the uneducated. Everyone was lying. Everyone was speaking falsehood to their neighbor. Everyone was sinning in a self-indulgent manner. So that's the first thing that they were doing. They were lying. The second thing he says is that they were flattering. See what he says there in verse 2? With flattering lips, with flattering lips and with a double heart they speak. Uh, In in verse 3, David petitions God to, to cut off. They're, they're flattering lips. And if you look the word uh, flattery up in a dictionary, you'd probably get something along these lines. Uh, excessive and insincere praise given especially to further one's own interests. So flattery isn't an innocent thing. Flattery is taking lying one step further because flattery always reveals impure, sinful, wicked motivation. People use flattery exclusively as a means to an evil end. They flatter to manipulate. They flatter to deceive or to self-promote or to cheat their neighbor. The Bible speaks directly to the wickedness, the absolute sinfulness of flattery. There are multiple warnings against it in the book of Proverbs. Daniel says that the wicked world ruler who will arise will use flattery to deceive and seduce the masses something that should terrify us in an age in which our culture's favorite idol is self-esteem. The Apostle Paul writes in Romans 16, 18, of those who stir up division and dissension in the church, writing, such men are slaves not of our Lord Christ, but of their own appetites, and by their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. So there are multiple warnings against flattery throughout the Bible. Now they say, you've probably heard the the saying in our culture, they say that imitation is the sincerest form of flattery, but just remember that they also say that flattery is like chewing gum. It'll taste sweet for a second, but don't swallow it. David saw people lying to each other. David saw people flattering one another, 
toward an evil end. Third, the people were speaking out of both sides of their mouths. David says, with flattering lips and a double heart they speak. Translated literally, this would say, they speak with a heart and a heart. So, so the, the idea here is that a word was being used to advance a cause that was actually opposite what they were saying, as James Boyce notes. In other words, they'd, they'd use one word, but they'd mean something completely different. So the word that was being used was essentially being redefined. It was being emptied out, hollowed out, and filled with some other kind of meaning, some other concept. Do we see anything like this today, people using speech that they've redefined to meet a certain agenda? You better believe it. We see it everywhere. There's perhaps no issue in which this is so common today as abortion. We refer to it as women's health care. That is a lie. That is deceiving. The term women's health care, I mean, how, how can anybody say that that would be a bad thing, right? No, women's health care is a good thing. We want women to be happy and, and healthy, right? Of course we do. Of course we do. If we call abortion what it is, if we call it murder, if we call it infanticide, well, it loses all its appeal. It loses all its persuasiveness. It just doesn't have the the, the persuasive appeal that women's health care has. The position of supporting abortion is called pro-choice. Once again, uh, that sounds like such a good thing, doesn't it? Choice. We like choices. We all make choices every day. Who could, be, who could possibly be against the freedom to make choices? Even that is the kind of doublespeak that David's talking about here. Who would say that choice is a bad thing? So do you see how language is being twisted and perverted and used to soothe a guilty conscience? Some will argue that it's Uh, that abortion is nothing more than removing a blob of tissue. So that removes the personhood from it completely. But many nowadays are so hardened in their sin, they won't even try to write it off as a blob of tissue. They'll freely admit it's a human being. Stand outside of Planned Parenthood with us sometimes, and you are likely to encounter people who will freely admit that a mother should just have the right to murder her children if she doesn't want them. This kind of word twisting has made mothers. This is very important. Listen to this. This kind of word twisting has made mothers the most prolific mass murderers in human history. 60 million casualties and counting from the mother's side. The one who's designed, who God designed to be the nurturer. It's so twisted. And the only way to advance it is to twist language. People are so deceived by the whole thing. But the point is that politicians as well as the masses use language that is specifically designed to present something less or other than the truth. It's deceptive. And as such, it is heinous sin. It's the same strategy that Satan used in the garden when he was tempting Eve. That alone should tell us, should warn us of how dangerous it is. That alone should warn us of how deeply sinful it is. So people, David sees people using their mouths to lie, to flatter, to deceive, and finally to boast. 
David reports their claims. He says, with our tongue, we will prevail. That's what he's quoting them as saying. With our tongue, we will prevail. In other words, the goal of prevailing was a worthy enough cause, a worthy enough goal that it excused the use of deception and lying and flattering. So it's basically the mentality that the ends justify the means. It's okay to lie if it's for this cause. It's a sinful mentality. It's the sinful mentality that we see behind political smear campaigns. It's the sinful mentality that we see behind fake news. It's about winning at all costs, even if it means playing dirty and being dishonest with the facts. Karl Marx said, give me 26 lead soldiers and I'll conquer the world. He was referring to the 26 letters of the English alphabet. He opened his uh, Communist Manifesto writing, the history of all hitherto existing society is the history of class struggles, end quote. And the conclusion was a powerful slogan, workers of the world, unite. And yet, on the 72nd anniversary of communism in Russia, there were pictures uh, pictures of demonstrators who were carrying signs that said, workers of the world, we're sorry, and 72 years leading nowhere. Karl Marx introduced this dangerously sinful, poisonous ideology to the world with the same boastful idea that David saw in his time, saw people using in his time. With our tongues, we will prevail. The second boast that he reports seeing is, our lips are our own. Now, if you think about it, isn't that just another way of saying, my body, my choice? It is. It's the same as saying, I can do whatever I want because I'm the one who owns my tongue. I can do whatever I want because it's a free country. It's a claim of autonomy. It's a rejection of the idea of being held accountable to anyone or anything. It's a rejection of God's authority over them, which is also reflected in the third boast. The third boast that David says is, who is Lord over us? These are people who are so foolishly boastful that they deny that they will have to answer to God one day for the words that they speak. And yet Jesus reminds us in Matthew chapter 12, verse 36, he said, But I tell you that every careless word that people speak, they shall give an accounting for it in the day of judgment. Shouldn't that cause us to be very, very cautious with what we say. Think about the careless words that you use, and and we are all guilty of this in one way or another at one time or another. Every one of us has used our speech to deceive someone at some point, or to manipulate others, or to protect ourselves, or maybe even to exalt ourselves. But Paul instructs us in Colossians chapter 4, verse 6, writing, Let your speech always be filled with grace as though seasoned with salt, so that you will know how you should respond to each person. So let this simply be a reminder that we should be a people who are very cautious with what we say and are very gracious with what we say, rather than being careless or even abusive with what we say. And this is what grieved David. And this is something that grieves many of us in our day and age as we see the same thing that David saw. But while we weren't in David's shoes, 
And so maybe we don't understand exactly what David was seeing. What we need to understand is that his solution is our solution. What he did is what we should do. This brings us to the second part of the psalm. After he reviews and records the words of man, which often cannot be trusted and which seem strong, even though they're weak and empty, David turns to the words of God, which can always be trusted and which are always powerful and stable. We'll continue looking at verses 5 and 6. Because of the devastation of the afflicted, because of the groaning of the needy, now I will arise, says the Lord. I will set him in the safety for which he longs. The words of the Lord are pure words, as silver tried in a furnace on the earth, refined seven times. It's interesting to see, you may have noticed as you were looking at your Bibles, that David is quoting God directly here. It's in quotation marks. This is actually the first psalm that quotes God directly in this manner. Because of the devastation of the afflicted, because of the groaning of the needy, now I will arise. I will set him in the safety for which he longs. Notice, by the way, that God's declaration of rising to take action is not, he doesn't say that he's doing it because David has asked him to. He's not doing it because David has pled with him. No, he's doing it because he hates the injustice that is taking place. He hates the deceit. He hates the lying. You see and, and hear me speaking against the social justice movement on a regular basis, and I do firmly believe that the Bible clearly, clearly, unequivocally condemns it. But it's not because justice is bad. It's because the social justice movement isn't about biblical justice. It involves, the, the social justice movement uh, is built around uh, accepting a very flawed worldly view of justice a worldly justice which actually ends up promoting partiality and thus producing more of what the Bible refers to as injustice. No, justice, biblical justice, is a very good thing, and God commands his people to practice justice. And it's not David's pleas that, that drive God to action. It is God's love for justice that drives him to take action against the injustice that is occurring, that David sees, and that David is grieving over. See, the weak and the poor and the afflicted and the powerless are often the first and most common victims of deceit in a given society. So the more a society lies, the more the powerless lose power. Because of their poverty, because of their weak position, they become very vulnerable to those who are greedy and would deceive them for their own selfish gain. And so you might find a politician who will promise free incentives as a means of gaining votes, free incentives paid for by money stolen from others. So we have politicians who want to pass measures that de-incentivize people, arguing that people who don't want to work still deserve to be paid. But what they're doing is incentivizing laziness, which might get a politician far, but only at the expense, only at the peril and the poverty of others. 
It teaches people to rely on the government, which must steal from Peter to support Paul, so to speak, rather than relying on the Lord. And so government becomes an idol. Government becomes what they trust in. But it's not just politicians. Don't get me wrong. Politicians do it all the time, but it's not just politicians. Think about where you'll find the most Planned Parenthood locations in poverty-stricken areas. They're taking advantage of and afflicting the, the poor and the powerless. Where do you find the most uh, payday loan stores where they charge exorbitant interest rates to people who need an advance on their paychecks? Again, in poverty-stricken, poverty-afflicted areas. As Christians who see the way that the poor are exploited, who see the way that the poor are deceived, and who have been instructed to love our neighbors as much as we love ourselves. We can't support these types of injustice. We should be a people who stand for justice, not just anybody's idea of justice, certainly not a worldly concept of justice. We stand for God's justice. We stand for biblical justice. Even when that puts us at odds with the culture of death and deception, that we are currently surrounded by, even when we feel like it's going to cause us to stand alone. But the fact that God sees and cares about the poor being plundered and deceived and afflicted should be a great comfort to us. The fact that he hears their groans is a great assurance of course, we recognize that God is active every day. It might look, it might feel like he's absent, but our feelings are constantly lying to us. Our hearts are constantly deceiving us. No, God is active every day. As you look around at the world, as you consider the way that people lie and, and scheme and deceive and abuse their ability to speak, and as the poor and the weak are afflicted, man's words often seem powerful, but the truth is, ultimately, they are weak. And God's words often seem weak, but ultimately they are powerful, steadfast, and trustworthy. God may feel absent, but his word, which is trustworthy, assures us that he is never absent, but that he is always, always, always active. His word, David says, is flawless. That stands to this day. That is true, 100% in Every way, to this day, his word is flawless. It's perfect, all of it, every word of it. We can stand on it. We can cling to it. Unlike the words of sinful men, we can trust it. We can trust the word of God because we can trust the God who has given us his holy, inspired, inerrant, sufficient word. So my question for you is this. How much do you believe that? I'm not just talking about what's in your mind, like, okay, I, I can affirm, check, check, check. I'm talking about when the rubber hits the road, when, when life really gets hard, when you really feel alone, do you trust it? Do you believe it? Do you stand on it? Do you cling to it? How much do you trust God to uphold his definition of justice when all's said and done. 
Do you believe that God's word is sufficient or do we need something other than the Bible? Do you believe that it's inerrant? Do you believe that it's profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness? See, there's an implied plea here for us to trust in God's word completely, particularly in light of how untrustworthy people and governments can be. But do you see what David did in his grief and his sorrow? He sees what man is doing. And he's deflated by it. He's discouraged by it. He's, he's sorrowful over it. But he turns to the word of God. He turns to the word of God. And that is something that he knows he can stand on. He can't stand on the words of men. But he can stand on the word of God. That's our application too here. Let's continue. This, this brings us to the final part of, of Psalm 12. Let's continue looking at verses 7 and 8. David writes, you, O Lord, will keep them. You will preserve him from this generation forever. The wicked strut about on every side when vileness is exalted among the sons of men. Verse 8 might kind of throw you for a loop. Because if you look at verse 8, the the wicked strut about on every side when vileness is exalted among the sons of men. What's the difference between what he sees at the end of this psalm and what he was seeing at the beginning of this psalm? Nothing. Nothing has changed as far as David can see. The circumstances are still the same. Maybe they're worse than they were when he started. How many times have you prayed only for your circumstances to not change? How many times have you prayed only for your circumstances to get worse? Verse 8 tells us the wicked still strut about on every side. Even after he's brought his pleas to God. Even after God has said, I'm going to take action. So what has changed? What, What effect is there in David's prayer? David changed. David changed. Because he knew that if God promised to take action, if he knew, as long as he knew that God was going to take action, that he was aware and that he was concerned and that he was going to do something about it, he could sleep at night. What David came to realize here is that the wicked are going to do what the wicked have always done. But he, David, like all of God's people, has the very word of God to stand on and to cling to. And he has the assurance that God not only sees the injustice, God is not only aware of the injustice and the deception that David is reporting, but that he is also very concerned about it. He also cares. He cares enough that he will do something about it, whether David sees it with his own eyes or not. So nothing has changed in terms of what David is seeing around him. But David himself is changed. David himself is strengthened and encouraged and fortified by God's word, by God's promise. God's word, his unthwartable promises, which nobody, nobody can stand in the way of. That was David's hope. And it needs to be ours too. 
Friends, don't look to the world for peace. Don't look to the culture for stability. Don't look to the world for for hope or comfort or encouragement or, or especially perhaps for direction. This world is sinking sand. This world is not our home. We're meant to see ourselves as people who are like sojourners in the wilderness, just passing through. The action that God took, ultimately, was in sending His only Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, into the world. He, the Lord Jesus, was the only person who has ever lived who never once lied, who never once flattered, who never once deceived or twisted words or boasted falsely. If it's true that all of our careless words will be judged, and it is, and if it's true that God must punish all sin, and it is, then even our words reveal our need for someone who has never spoken falsely, indeed never sinned, to stand in our place before God. Peter tells us that Jesus committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. The bad news is that you've sinned and that we are all only worthy of condemnation by God. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus never once sinned. He constantly was in the will of the Father And he offers forgiveness of sins to all who will come to him, repenting and believing in the one who bore our sin and bore the wrath of God in our place as our substitute. Now this psalm is not about, it's not telling us don't trust anybody. What God is telling us to do here is to put our ultimate trust in him and in his word. Man will say what man will say. Measure what man says. Measure every truth claim against God's word. Because his word is always pure. His word is always true. His word is always sufficient and worthy of our highest and our fullest trust. Here's a promise that you can take to the bank. For the sinner who will come to Jesus in true faith and repentance, Jesus offers forgiveness of sins and redemption. God will put the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth, within every child he adopts. He will teach us to love the truth. He will teach us to stand on the truth. He will teach us to cling to the truth and give us the strength to do that. And he will teach us to hope in the truth, to be sanctified in the truth, the truth of his word, all for the glory of his namesake. And when God does this, your feelings may still lie to you. You you may still feel like you're alone in the world as the world gets swept away by a rising current of lies and flattery and deception and boasting. But God, God has promised not only that we are never alone, indeed that he is with us always, but he has also promised to place us in the safety for which we long. And there is no safer place than in the care of the Good Shepherd. That's where we are right now. This moment, for all who are in Christ, we are in the care of the Good Shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
which doesn't mean that life will be trouble-free. But it does mean that even when trials do come, even when hardships come, even when we feel alone, even when it looks like injustice and dishonesty are ruling the day, we can know that God is not absent, that God is not unaware. Instead, we know that he is actively causing all things to work together for his glory and the good of his people. Let's pray together. Our most gracious Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the trustworthy foundation that we have in your word. Thank you, Lord, that your word is true, that your word is undefiled. Thank you, Lord, that you have given it to us for our instruction, for our correction, for reproof, for training in righteousness, for everything that we need to live a life that is pleasing to you. Thank you that you have given us your Holy Spirit to understand it and beyond that, to love it and to apply it to our lives. We confess to you, Lord, that we're guilty of using words in a way that is less than truthful, every one of us in one way or another. But we thank you that the Lord Jesus never spoke falsely, never sinned, and that he stands as our mediator between us as people who are fallen and worthy of hell and you who are holy and cannot look upon sin and wickedness. So we thank you that he stands between us that he bridges the chasm between us in order that we may be clothed in his righteousness, that we may be justified, that we may be sanctified by your work, and ultimately that one day we'll be separated completely from the lies and the deception and all the scheming of this world, all the sin of this world. We look forward to that day. Until then, we pray for your grace to sustain us, and to continue growing us in our walk with you for the glory of Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us, and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today and keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.